to The Daily Buzz, a new podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Every weekday, The Daily Buzz will share the day's biggest news from across Utah, explained by the Tribune journalists that reported it. We'll cover everything from bills Utah's lawmakers are debating to how the Beehive State's healthcare providers are responding to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. In the time it takes you to drink your morning coffee, The Daily Buzz will get you ready for your day in just five to seven minutes. For more than 150 years, the Salt Lake Tribune has delivered the daily news to Utahns. And now we can't wait to share our mornings with you. Join us. Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined again by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormonland. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcasts and our complete newsletter. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. Almost a year ago, noted Latter-day Saint historian and prodigious researcher D. Michael Quinn died suddenly at age 77. Quinn, who retained his belief in the founding events of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints until his death, was pressured to resign from Brigham Young University and subsequently excommunicated from the faith in 1993 as part of the famed September 6 for his writings about women and the priesthood, as well as about post-manifesto polygamy. For the past 11 months, friends and fellow academics have discussed the scholar's legacy. On March 25th, many of them will gather at the University of Utah for a one-day conference to examine and celebrate Quinn's life. In addition, Signature Books recently published a new biography of Quinn by historian and archivist Gary Topping, titled simply D. Michael Quinn, Mormon Historian. The book helps flesh out the multiple aspects of Quinn's identity as queer, Chicano, and fiercely independent. Topping joins us via Zoom to discuss his book, and we welcome in studio Barbara Jones-Brown, Signature's new director, who can share details from an unpublished memoir discovered by Quinn's children after his death. Barbara, Gary, welcome. Thank you for having us. So glad to have you. So, Gary, let's start with you. You're a non-Mormon. You're a Roman Catholic. How did you get interested in writing about Michael Quinn? And how did how did you know him? Uh, I had known Mike for uh, maybe 30 years. I met him back in the 1980s when I worked at the Utah State Historical Society. And our paths have crossed occasionally uh, since then. Uh, he applied for a job at Salt Lake Community College while I was on the history faculty there. And I pushed very hard to hire him, but we were not able to do that. And um, and so that's uh, kind of, I, I, I didn't know him very well, but, uh, but we knew each other uh, it turns out i and i hadn't I, I had not read his books uh he had read my books but i hadn't read his it's kind of a crazy little reversal of the subject object relationship <laughs> there <laughs> but uh, uh how did i get uh, uh started writing this well it, it wasn't my idea uh, it was gary bergera's idea uh to my great astonishment one day i opened my email and uh and here's a message from Gary uh, indicating that Signature was going to start this brief Mormon Live series of, of um, Mormon biographies of 100 or so pages in length and uh, and wanted to know if I'd like to write one about uh, Mike Quinn. And I was just baffled by that. And I wrote back to him and I said, well, the, the, Gary, this is extremely flattering, but I'm completely unqualified to do 
this. I, I'm not a Mormon. I'm not a historian of Mormonism. I haven't read his books. I won't really even know him that well. And uh, so, but uh, Gary uh, uh, really, uh, he, he was very flattering. He said, well, I've chose you because uh, Gary had read, I, I've written two previous books about uh, Utah historians and Gary had read them and admired them. And he said, you are the historian's historian. And so that's why we want you to do this. And uh, so I had to have a long conversation with myself about this and eventually decided, okay, this is a huge challenge, but I, I think I'll give it a go. <laughs> so, I mean, let's, let's kind of just as an overview before we get to some details, what were some key takeaways that you took from the study of Michael Quinn's life? Well, I, I think that Mike's significance in the historical world is just his absolute honesty as a historian. Um, and uh, I, he was honest, I think, to the point of naivety. Uh, I, I asked him about that one time. Uh, Mike, you, you, you can write an article like uh, Mormon women have had the priesthood since 1843. And uh, that's a pretty astonishing assertion. And, uh, and also he wrote this 97-page article in Dialogue magazine detailing hundreds of post-manifesto plural marriages that were performed with the approval of the church. And so you can write stuff like that. And then you ask yourself, so why do they hate me? You know? <laughs> and and to, to me, it was pretty obvious why they would hate him for that. But uh, he said, no, I wasn't naive. Uh, in other words, he, he knew that he was going to catch some uh, flack for that. But he uh, but the naivety, I think, occurred at a, at a deeper level that he thought that, yes, he knows this is going to be shocking. But he just he had faith that people, once they saw the truth, would eventually come around. And uh, and many of them did, but unfortunately, the ones who really mattered—that is, the members of the church hierarchy—did not come around, and he had to pay the ultimate price for that. So, what surprised you in your study of him, his life? So, I didn't know Mike well. I met him a few times, um, respected him, and uh, definitely relied on his work and my own work on post-manifesto polygamy. Uh, but did not know him well. And as I've been reading his autobiography, it's been incredibly insightful. There's two things, two things that come out as I read his writings. One is his discovery and coming to understand as a young man that he is gay, but determining to keep that hidden and to repress that for the rest of his life because he wants to be an active Mormon. Um, and then his discovery also that his father was not Spanish and Irish, as his father had told him, but was Mexican. And his father's real name was Pena, and he took the last name of Quinn uh, to fit in and to be as white Anglo-Saxon Protestant as he could, as Mike puts it. So there's these two themes of he's discovering and then hiding these things about himself. And so when he starts studying Mormon history, he has this desire to bring out these uh, these secrets or these these hidden things in Mormon history as he's he says hiding things about himself but also trying to force his father to be honest about those things. So it's fascinating to see how those two things in his background led his desire and his uh, motivation to discover unknown things in Mormon history. So Gary, let me turn to you. What what first prompted uh, 
Mike, to study post-manifesto polygamy in college? Well, it was uh, while he was an undergraduate at BYU, a, a classmate of his uh, had uh, uh, their religion teacher had accused this guy's grandfather, I guess it was, of being an adulterer because he had engaged in a, uh, uh, in a plural marriage after the manifesto. And the kid was just outraged and went to Quinn about it and said, oh, my grandfather was no adulterer. This was a legitimate marriage. And so Quinn uh, journeyed to Salt Lake City to the old uh, uh, genealogical library, they called it then, and, and looked the guy up and found out that he was right, that this was a uh, church-sanctioned marriage. And uh, and so that was the first place in which he realized that maybe the, his religion teachers weren't giving him the full truth. And, and out of that uh, chance episode came this uh, whole career of his and uh, uh, pursuing what he called the silent places in Mormon history. And that that college uh, colleague was Stephen Robinson, right? Yes. Who is also a pretty well-known author. BYU religion professor. Mm-hmm. And yes. Mm-hmm. So in the book, in your book, Gary, you describe um, how Mike knew that he was likely to be disciplined. And so he, he spent some time dodging that, kind of hiding, moving from place to place. Can you tell us a little bit about what tactics the church used, church leaders used to try to find him and tie him down? Well, it was a revelation to me, and I think it was a revelation to Mike also that they had such great surveillance techniques that they could follow him. Uh, they knew where he was. They, they just, uh, but he was getting his mail at a post office box in New Orleans there for a long time. So, so they didn't have a street address that they could track him down at. But, uh, but you're right. He was uh, he was on the lam there for some time. I think eventually. Uh, he just came to regret that he couldn't live on the lamb and, and he realized that they were going to nail him anyway. And so let's just come out and get it over with. And that eventually is what happened. But didn't some people like um, falsely pretend to be, you know, talk, try to talk to his mother. And, and then there were some other fake identities where they were trying to track him down. Yeah, there was uh, a one episode in which they had offered him some kind of gold credit card, uh, but he couldn't have a post office box. He had to have an actual mailing address. And he found out that this wasn't uh, MasterCard or whatever it was. It was a church, uh, some church office that was behind all of this. And that that kind of uh, subterfuge to try to uh, track him down. Interesting. So um, we all wonder about the cell phone numbers sometimes that come up on our cell phones. Right. So, so um, well, Barbara and Gary, both of I wanted to address this. Did, did Mike or ever talk about his excommunication, especially in his later years, when the church itself was starting to acknowledge many of the things that that Mike had written about, you know, that uh, these controversial topics suddenly now are in church essays. So Barbara, did, did he ever remark on that? Or what do you think about that? Even if, even if you didn't hear or know about those remarks. So I've been trying to learn all I can um, about Mike's life as I'm reading his biography or his um, memoirs. I'm reading all of the documents I can, the background information, because we are uh, thinking about annotating his memoirs. And I read an article that came out in Newsweek magazine in 1982, in which uh, Mike 
it's talking about how Mike has come under fire for criticizing um, elders or President Benson and Elder Boy K. Packer for trying to cover up these these previously secret or unknown aspects of church history. And Mike says. It's important that we make these things known to young people and students because they're going to find out about these things on their own anyway, and then it's going to destroy their faith more. So let's just get these things out in the open and talk about them. And it's it was kind of tragic for me because he says this in 1982, but now that is the position of yeah. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the history department and historians is let's just talk about all of these uh, things and get them out in the open. So I think uh, Mike was ahead of his time and tragically that um, didn't go well for him when yeah. he was excommunicated in so, 1990. So he was saying that pre-internet, in other words, before exactly. all these things were so easily accessible. Exactly. Um, yeah. Gary, what about you on that? That question. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think what we're looking at here is sort of a, a matter of institutional inertia. <clears throat> that is, um, you know, it would have been so easy for the church just to renege on this excommunication, say, look, we were wrong. Mike was telling the truth and uh, let's just let him back in and, uh, and get it over with. But <laughs> I, I can tell you as a Roman Catholic, I can tell you a few things about institutional inertia. Uh, we've, got, <laughs> we've got you Mormons. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> but that's the case. And, uh, and so in order to get back into the church, Mike would have had to have admitted that he was wrong and then uh, submit to rebaptism. And he wasn't about to do that. He didn't do anything wrong. And uh, and so there we are. Yeah. And I would just add, I think by by 1993, he has come to terms with the fact that he is gay and that cannot be repressed or changed. Uh, he and his wife have divorced uh, because of that. And he is choosing to live his authentic life by that point anyway. So because of that issue, and I'd love to hear what you think as well, Gary, I don't think he would have wanted to have come back uh, and, 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 and tried to live that repressed kind of life again. But Gary, what do you think? Well, that had to have been very uncomfortable for him to uh, essentially be living a lie. And uh, and it's to his great credit and to his wife Jan's great credit also that they finally just recognized that we can't keep doing this. Uh, we're, we're just going to have to split. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to say uh, something about my book. Um, uh, it, it is not a definitive biography of Mike Quinn by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it, it, it is a biography, but the biographical elements are just there to support my analysis of his books. Uh, my book is really uh, my book about his books. That's uh, the mm -hmm. whole orientation of the thing. And um, uh, and, and in fact, you'll see that there are several chapters right in the middle of my book in which the biographical narrative just simply vanishes. And it's just an essay about his individual books. And um, uh, so I, and I, I think that uh, 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 a definitive biography of Mike Quinn would have to be written by somebody who is much more conversant with psychology than I am. Uh, 
uh, Barbara can tell you that the, in, in this the, this memoir of his is extremely frank uh, about his sex life and about his whole interior life uh, to the point that I just don't have the qualifications to be able to get to the bottom of the guy of, of who Mike Quinn really was. And so uh, there's that. I think that uh, as far as his homosexuality goes, that's one thing that I don't believe Mike himself ever fully came to grips with. Um, he was never was able to develop a permanent relationship with another guy. And um, uh, he, he said uh, uh, while he was married to Jan that that he just wasn't made for being part of a couple or something. I don't think that that's true. I, I think he was capable of doing that. I think he did a magnificent job of it. Uh, uh, given all the difficulties, I think he was a wonderful husband. He was a wonderful father. His kids will testify to that, uh, given the, the circumstances. Uh, but somehow or other, he never was able to kind of define himself adequately as a gay person. At one point in his uh, memoir, he talks about, and, and, and in his memoir, what he does is he quotes his journal and then expounds upon it uh, in his in his writings. But at one point he says, and this is, is from his journal and expounding it on his journal that he was, he said he had become asexual by the time he and his wife divorced. He had just repressed that side of himself so much that he's, he describes himself as being burnt out and asexual. And though I think that he did desire, as Gary says, to have a fulfilling, um, gay relationship after he's divorced, I think he seems to say he's sober now. He's incapable of doing that. So, so Barbara, why don't you tell our listeners what you're talking about in terms of the memoir? How, how is it different than what Gary had? And, and because Gary's saying his, his book is largely about analyzing his work and, right. and, um, that's a powerful part of your book, Gary, that I really appreciated. But now there's these new sort of memoir details. So can you tell us a little bit about how that all came to be? Sure. Um, I just started at Signature for a few, a few weeks ago. And so I've been learning everything I can about this memoir to understand it. And so Gary, correct me if I'm wrong on anything. But my understanding is that when uh, Gary Bergera, my predecessor, came to Gary Topping and asked him to write this biography, uh, Mike was still alive and um, that Gary Topping had the use of a preliminary manuscript that Gary, that uh, Mike Quinn had written and submitted a signature for publication in 1998. At that time, the reviewers said it, it, they made some suggestions for improvement and for strengthening the memoir. One of the reviewers very presciently said, I think this memoir needs to be published in 20 years. It's now uh, 23, 24 years <laughs> later. Um, and I do think it is the right time for it to come out now. But um, so... These reviewers give this feedback to Mike Quinn in 1998. He doesn't ever resubmit it, but he does seem to take those uh, reviewers' comments and suggestions and work th on them quite a bit. The last time he worked on this memoir was in 2010. But then for some reason, I'm not sure of, he never resubmits it. And after he died, uh, Mike's children found this completed memoir 
and submitted it, gave it to Signature Book and asked us to publish it. And so my understanding is, is that Gary Topping had uh, and this earlier previous version of his uh, memoir, autobiography journal uh, to work from, but that it was very incomplete and not what we received recently from Mike's children. Does that sound correct to you, Gary Topping? Uh, it does. Uh, I've been wondering uh, since I learned that you had this uh, fuller uh, memoir, just just what that was. And I, I think I understand from what you're saying now uh, what it was. Um, uh, at, at one point, when I got started writing the book uh, in dealing with Quinn's early life, I, I had not planned to involve him in my research. I, I don't like to write with somebody looking over my shoulder. And so I thought that maybe once I got it finished, I would give it to him just for correction of factual errors and stuff like that. But, but when I started talking about his early life, especially this complicated, messed up family life that he grew up in, I, I just realized that I uh, and I had this earlier memoir that I, I couldn't make heads or tails even of that. And so I was just going to have to involve him at an early stage. Uh, so I called him up. I called Quinn up and we talked for it must have been two hours hours we talked until the my phone battery started to uh, go dead and it was a wonderful conversation as i said we hadn't gotten to know each other very well over the years but uh well it was just like we'd known each other forever we talked and joked and teased each other and and he invited me to call him back and uh anytime i wanted and all this stuff but he told me during that conversation when he found out that i had this memoir which i was not supposed to have instantly and i didn't know that uh, that that what I had was an earlier draft of a much longer version that was in his papers at Yale. And now I'm starting to put the pieces together. Apparently, he had a copy of it in his possession, and that's what his kids found. So so that the, the, the full memoir at Yale and the one that you have, Barbara, must be uh, essentially one and the same. That's my understanding, yes. Can, can I ask a, a couple more questions just on, or at least one more on Michael's uh, sexual orientation? Did he ever mention that he had a same sex relationship, an intimate relationship with somebody or? Gary? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, there was, um, uh, you know, I, I there was um, there's another document that I also was not supposed to have, and that is uh, uh, an actual diary that he kept, a fairly lengthy diary that he kept. Uh, sometime I can't remember what year it was during the 1990s. Uh, he was living in uh, Alfred Bush's condo in Chiapas, Mexico. Alfred Bush is this uh, archivist at Princeton University, and uh, he kept this diary of uh, those several months in Chiapas. And he talks about uh, having sexual relationships uh, uh, during that, uh, although a lot he talks a lot more about sexual yearnings than actual sexual acts. And uh, he always was very unhappy with himself for being so shy uh, that he really wasn't able to get a date very easily and stuff like that. But he, he does talk explicitly about sexual relations. Okay. But not any relationships, boyfriends or. Yeah. Right. He doesn't seem to uh, have any long term, mm -hmm. you know, someone that he, quote, settles down with. Right. Yeah. He has a yeah. long term relationship with, though he he deeply desired that, but he just felt like he was incapable of it. Are there any other manuscripts that he has for just more general his, historical work that are could still be published? Was he working on other projects uh, that that 
I mean, I'm just curious where he was at on that, Gary. Um, I, uh, I think Barbara may know more about that than I do. I understand he was working on something about Mormon fundamentalism at the time of his death, but I didn't talk to him about mm-hmm. that and I haven't seen anything. So I, I don't know. Barbara, do you know, or does Signature have anything? Yeah, my understanding is, is that he was working on something on uh, post-manifesto polygamy, fundamentalism. um, And I don't know the status of that or Mm. if there ever was a manuscript with that, but I definitely intend to look into it. (laughs) And didn't, did, did you say in the memoir, Barbara, that he said something about writing a novel? Yeah. So he um, when he's a young man, I don't know if people realize this, but before he decided to become a historian, he planned uh, he was majoring in English and and planned to get a Ph.D. at Duke in English. Um, And so as a young man, he ventures into writing uh, novels a few different times. Uh, And I think that's where his talent for being a good writer originated from. You know, he had this background, but there's this one uh, novel he describes writing and it just kind of broke my heart as a teenager about uh, two brothers during the Civil War. One is a Union soldier and the other is a Confederate soldier. And he says, I think originally I saw in myself the Union soldier, the conformist, but other times I saw in myself the uh, uh, Confederate soldier, the rebel, and I didn't know which of the two brothers was me. And he said, and I eventually planned to have the rebel soldier die. Uh, and that would be me. But then he, he says, I came to like both of these brothers so much. I couldn't kill either one of them. And he says, I think myself was reflected in both of those brothers. So incredibly poignant, uh, insights like that in his memoir. Maybe as we begin to wrap up, can I, can I ask uh, each of you, what's Michael Quinn's greatest contribution? Well, I think it's uh, what I indicated earlier, just this absolute honesty of his. Uh, He was able to probe uh, the dark corners of Mormon history that nobody else was willing to venture into. Um, Even uh, Leonard Arrington and Davis Bitton, who were two great Mormon historians and mentors of his, tried to tamp down some of this honesty. Look, Mike, you're getting into places here that uh, that we, we just don't want to go. Uh, one of them had to do with, uh, uh, I, and I, I don't know what the exact term for this is, but kind of uh, uh, Joseph Smith's theological kingship idea that he developed at Nauvoo. And uh, Mike had uh, some of that in his master's thesis. And, uh, and boy, there was a really uncomfortable meeting in which uh, down at the uh, uh, church headquarters uh, between Mike and Leonard Arrington and Davis Bitten and Jim Allen. The, these were the three leaders of the history division there and three just icons of Mormon history in which they just grilled the living daylights out of him to try to get him to remove that stuff from his master's thesis. Well, he left it in. It's uh, in, in volume one of the Mormon hierarchy. There's, it's a big section in there which he just comes right out with it and discusses it openly and fully. And and his willingness to do that, I think, has, uh, uh, has inspired other Mormon historians to be equally honest and come forth with stuff that, that may be a bit uncomfortable. Hmm. Barbara? Thinking about uh, Mike's literary background, um, that I just described, I would describe him as a tragic hero um, 
his absolute honesty, like Gary mentioned, or excuse me, <laughs> Gary Topping mentioned, um, was tragic in that he he was absolutely honest. He forced people, including uh, Mormon historians themselves, to come to a reckoning of these uh, places in Mormon history that had not been explored, that had not been talked about, had not been researched and published. And he forced people to do that by his writings. And when I say he's a tragic hero now, the church history department openly publishes these mm-hmm. kinds of works, the, the, the Joseph Smith Papers Projects, um, and we have the gospel topics essays now that are on the LDS.org on the church's website, openly talking about all these things that he uh, suffered for to to be able to to get these things out into the open. And so I uh, in my own work, again, on post manifesto polygamy, I'm so grateful for what he did Um I'm grateful for 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 how he led out in these areas. And uh, I think it's tragic that we are remembering him mostly for this um, after he's gone. Hmm. And uh, I think he did before he died know of of people's uh, appreciation for what he did. But I think more and more it's coming out after his death, um, how much he changed things and how much we appreciate him. Would he have been, I mean, this is all conjecture, I know. Could he have been the same kind of historian in the environment now? I mean, in other words, would he have been satisfied or would he have not been able to push the envelope? You know what I mean? He, he, this is discovered territory now is what I'm saying people are doing. I'm just curious if that environment helped motivate him. I'll tell you, I, uh, as a historian, I have enough trouble explaining the past without uh, dealing with things like this in the future, what might have been. I have no idea. Hmm. Um, yeah, I would agree that he would, uh, it would be easier for him to be Michael Quinn today mm-hmm. than it was in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, that's, uh, I, I'm sure of that. Just exactly what that might have looked like, uh, it's impossible to say. Hmm. So last question, what do you think the, your biography and your, the memoir add to what we know about, we already know about Mike Quinn? Um, I, I don't think that my biography adds an awful lot. Uh, it's, I think my analysis of his books uh, it will, will be significant. And that, uh, after all, is why I wrote the book and why Gary asked me to write the book ultimately. Um, so I, when this memoir gets published, that, that will contain a, a lot of stuff that, uh, uh, that, that uh, is, is uh, uh, hitherto unknown. I think the memoir will help us understand much more the private Mike Quinn. Um, we have a lot of uh, documentation of things he wrote, of course, and articles written about him and, and Gary's biography of him and so forth. There's so much that we do know about him publicly, but this memoir shares what he is feeling and thinking behind the scenes as all of this is unfolding. And so I think it will really help us understand more um, the man that he was, the private man that he was, and again, what he was feeling and thinking as these things are unfolding. It, it may be far too early, Barbara, but what's the timeline on when that might come <laughs> um, out? <laughs> we're we're going to shoot for this fall. We feel like it's important, uh, a very important work and that it should come out soon. Um, but I believe we will be annotating it to help uh, scholars who are younger than myself. Um 
uh, know what he's talking about. Um, he talks about a lot of cultural issues, for example, baseball baptisms that I happen to know about because I'm in my fifties, but I'm sure younger scholars will have no idea what that is. He talks about his mission president, Marion D. Hanks, who's 41 years old at the time and is telling Mike all kinds of things that are going on <laughs> with, with the mission and with the church. Um, but will younger scholars even know who Marion D. Hanks is and so forth. So I think it's important that we annotate this, that this becomes an important public, uh, an important work that historians will refer to and use for generations. So that annotation is going to add a little bit of extra time, but we hope to get it out very soon. The name of the book out now, by the way, is D. Michael Quinn, Mormon historian, Gary Topping and Barbara Jones Brown. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Gary. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels, we remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the big happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. Mormon Land.